Hello, everyone. It's uh, Larry Kotlikoff back with Economics Matters. I'm delighted to have uh, my very good friend, uh, George Hoge, uh, with us today. Uh, George, I've known forever. Um, he's a uh, private investor and CEO of Chesham Investments, LLC. He's also consults to various institutional investment committees. Uh, for many years, he led the active emerging markets institutional equity investment team and served as global investment strategist at uh, State Street Global Advisors, uh, State Street Global Advisors, one of the largest um, uh, investment managers uh, in the world. So let me just kind of emphasize this, uh, getting a job at State Street is no minor deal. Being a big deal at State Street is a very big deal. George was a very big deal at State Street for a very long time. And uh, then he switched into his own um, uh, enterprise uh, at Chesham Investments. Um, but at State Street, he worked with some of the world's largest institutional investors, including central banks and sovereign wealth funds. That's also a very big deal. He spent the first part of his career in investment banking at Citigroup, Citicorp, um, investment bank and then a banker's trust company. And he worked on oil and gas mer mergers and acquisitions and supervised the bank's business in Africa. From 1981 through 1984, uh, he served at the US Treasury Department. Uh, we were both down in Washington at the same time, but I we didn't actually connect. Uh, we didn't meet each other at that point, but he was um, a big deal. Uh, before he became a big deal, he was a big deal at the US Treasury. He served first as U.S. alternate executive. Uh, well, I guess you were first uh, alternate executive director at the World Bank. So he first is at the World Bank, and then he goes over to the Treasury uh, as principal deputy assistant secretary of the Treasury for international affairs. So um, George has uh, worked in government. He's worked in international organizations. He's worked in the private sector. And he's worked us uh, at the very top, highest levels. Uh, now, maybe this has something to do with his um, personality, but also he's extremely <laughs> well-trained. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Business School. He holds an MA in economics from Boston University, uh, where you know I'm at. And he earned uh, the Chartered Financial Analyst CFA designation and is also a qualified financial risk manager. Uh, that's an FRM designation. So George, delighted to have you. And we're gonna kind of turn the tables in this podcast today. George decided ha having listened to uh, me interviewing so many people, I think I've done maybe 60, 65 podcasts since I started Economics Matters, the, the newsletter and the podcast. Uh, George decided that um, he wanted to hear me talk rather than me ask questions. <laughs> so he decided he wanted to interview me. So this is uh, kind of a, a different uh, turn the table situation where George is going to hit me with questions and I'm going to try and answer them. Uh, but we're also going to get George's opinion on things because it's going to be a two-sided conversation. So George, <laughs> fire away. Thanks for So having Larry, me. thank you very much for that very kind uh, introduction. And I, I do just want to point out to uh, our listeners your extraordinary intellectual and civic engagement over the years and the contributions that you've made as a researcher, having published more than 100 uh, academic papers and, of course, uh, a well-regarded textbook in macroeconomics. As an educator, having built up BU's economics uh, department, as a consultant and public intellectual, uh, uh, having testified more than uh, 19 times in front of the Congress of the United States. You mentioned your podcast, which I and others, I think, have found to be extremely uh, topical and informative. But also, Larry, as a political change agent, uh, having run for president, and outlined uh, a very comprehensive plan to address so many of the structural problems that face uh, our uh, economy. And finally, as a businessman having and financial planner, having developed Maxify Planner, which is 
the very best uh, personal financial planning software available uh, in the market and helps people really navigate the complexity of the social security system. And what really resonates with me and I think many others is a, is a phrase on your website, which is that research theoretical and empirical is the basis of personal, national and international economics. So uh, it's great to have an opportunity uh, to chat and let's just uh, jump in right away on uh, the topic of fiscal dynamics in the United States, the fiscal gap and uh, the long-term uh, outlook. So as is well known, we're, I've got a full employment deficit now of about uh, uh, 5.4%, primary deficit of 3.8%, debt to GDP, according to CBO, uh, rising to about 145% uh, uh, in the next 20, 20 years. And uh, you've laid out a comprehensive plan, uh, the purple plan, talking about a business cash flow tax, increase in FICA tax, and other uh, measures. And I'd be interested to, I was interested in your writings when you talked about some of the problems of the definition of debt <laughs> and how we define uh, debt more broadly speaking. But let's start out by discussing how acute you think this problem is. So two prominent economists wrote in Foreign Affairs uh, in 2019, who's afraid of deficits? And the basic argument was that when real interest rates are low, if uh, R is less than G, we really shouldn't worry that much because as long as we're borrowing to improve our productive stock and develop our human capital, that this issue uh, uh, is not as uh, palpable and urgent as may others make it out. So I'd just be interested in your general thoughts on that. Okay, well, okay. first of all, again, uh, George, thanks so much for joining me and uh, thinking up this idea of um, asking me questions uh, about my views. The um, I think the U.S. is in terrible long-term fiscal shape, much worse than uh, the politicians and most almost every economist is portraying. Uh, part of the reason is that we've hidden the or the main. Well, I say we know, we all know that uh, debt official debt is very high, but uh, we don't realize that unofficial debt, debt that's been put off the books, is much higher than the official debt. So that's uh, that's really the reason why uh, things are much worse than most people uh, realize. Even members of Congress, they're not really uh, understanding that something that's off the books, it can be just as uh, uh, real in terms of an obligation than something that as something that's on the books. If you think about uh, Social Security's um, unfunded liability, which the uh, trustees report in March uh, 31st, uh, 2023 came out and said that it's uh, 65.9 trillion. That's uh, more than twice the official debt. It's about two, um, well, at least the debt is in the hands of the public and it's about two years of uh, GDP. So just Social Security uh, has got a liability that's uh, that makes our debt, official debt look small. Now, what is the unfunded liability of Social Security? Well, you take all the projected uh, outlays uh, as projected by the Social Security actuaries, and you subtract all the projected receipts, all the FICA, uh, uh, you know, payroll tax uh, receipts, as well as the trust fund, which has a present value uh, today. It's not huge, but you include that. So you treat it as something real. Some people argue over whether it's real or not, but um, uh, they incorporate it for sure. And uh, 65.9 trillion, $66 trillion. Again, US GDP is around 24 trillion. So um, we're, um, uh, yeah, we, it's like, it's, I guess we're talking about, um, yeah, it's more than tw twice GDP. Now, if you do this for the entire country, uh, you have a fiscal gap that is the difference between all the projected outlays, not just for Social Security, but every, expenditure we can think about, uh, defense spending, uh, 
welfare benefits, um, healthcare benefits like Medicare and Medicaid, uh, defense spending, infrastructure spending, the whole path of outlays has to be covered in present value by the path of receipts and uh, taxes from all sources. And in present value, that difference is enormous. And what, let me just try and put it in these terms. It's about 8% of GDP every year. 8% of GDP every year would, would be enough to close the fiscal gap. And that would require almost a 50% hike in every single revenue source. So think about your income taxes, George, you'd have to face 50% higher income taxes, 50% higher FICA taxes, 50% higher excise taxes, uh, every, uh, Every federal excise taxes, every state tax is 50% higher. So, uh, and how is it that we have so much uh, off the books uh, that we're missing? Well, it's pretty easy to put things off the books. I can um, take some money from you, George. Uh, I'm, I'm Uncle Sam and I say, uh, let me take, a, let's say $10,000 from you today and promise to pay it back with interest in the future, uh, maybe in 10 years. Now, did I just borrow 10,000 and uh, so did I sell you a bond and IOU and take back 10,000 and then have an on the books, an official obligation to pay 10,000 back to you with interest in the future? Uh, that's one set of words. I could also have said, hey, I'm taxing you 10,000 today, George, and in the future, I'm gonna make a transfer payment uh, equal to uh, the, the 10,000 plus interest. If I use those words, I put it off the books because the obligation to pay you back the 10,000 that I took from you now that, that I promised to pay you in the future with interest, that's not uh, valued as official liabilities. That's off the books. So really the official debt is just a word game uh, and we're getting mixed up in our language. And it's really no different from uh, you know, relativity in in, um, uh, in physics, where we don't, uh, we know that the equations of physics do not define time and distance. Uh, we know that the perspective, you know, how you measure those things depends on your frame of reference, your language. If you're going through space at this speed, at this direction, you're gonna get one measure of, t of the time right now. If you're going in that direction, a different speed, you'll get a different measure. And those frames of reference are really labeling conventions or languages. And here, uh, it's no different. How we label, uh, how we talk about our fiscal policy uh, matters. The real thing is I'm taking 10K from you and I'm gonna give it back to you in the future. I could also be taking 10K from you and not giving it back, or I could be giving you far more than 10K plus interest. That's the real policy. And we need to have a measure that's independent of how we describe it, uh, how we label it. And that's the fiscal gap measure. And that under that measure, which I uh, started working on and also a related uh, measurement called generational accounting, which looks at how much of this fiscal gap, how big of a fiscal gap, how, how big of a burden does the fiscal gap impose on our kids? I started working on that with Alan Auerbach and a, and a former grad student, Jagdish Gokhale, who's been a Cato of late. Uh, we started work on that back in 1989. And this is the way economics says we need to measure these problems. And we showed that given the uh, trajectory we're on back then in 1989, uh, that we were basically impoverishing our children. We were putting such a fiscal burden on our kids that uh, they were not gonna be able to, um, to maintain their living standard like we have the American dream was being killed. And we, we did this analysis for countries all over the world. Uh, and it's still being done by different uh, countries and the European Union is doing a version of this uh, every three years uh, for every member of the European Union. We don't do it at all in the US. We just keep everything off the books so we can have congressmen and women and uh, uh, avoid the, the, the truth and uh, Anyway, um, so we have a, a terrible problem and we need to come up with radical policies to fix it. I mean, think about Social Security. Uh, 
Uh, Nikki Haley, who I admire a lot, uh, is running for president. She's the only one who's really talking uh, about fixing Social Security, which we know in, in 10 years is going to run cash flow uh, negative and uh, not be able to cover benefits. So she's saying, well, let's raise the retirement age for younger people. Uh, as they get older, they're going to have to start the Social Security benefits later. And, uh, well, for, you know, that's probably a, a good part of a proposal to fix Social Security, but it's peanuts <clears throat> in terms of the $65.9 trillion fiscal gap that Social Security faces. So uh, this is, we have to be addressing these issues much more fundamentally because what the politicians are proposing is just another form of kick the can down the road. Let's come up with enough money to shore up the short-term cash flow deficit problem. That might also involve even more borrowing off the books. And then and then uh, let somebody else handle the issue. This is a prescription for uh, the end of the country. I mean, they, you know, we're falling behind uh, you know, if you look at what's going on with our military, uh, uh, China's projected to have basically twice the size of, the, of its navy in, at the uh, mid-century than we are. Than we are, we can't keep up because we're running out of money. We can't do basic research because we're running out of money. So it's not just in the future that this is coming. We see it right now that Congress doesn't have the money it needs to cover what, our, what the richest country in the world should be doing. How financially secure do you feel? Imagine a tool to help you make smart financial decisions, a tool that factors in all your financial data and shows what you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. That tool is Maxify. Powerful, accurate, and easy to use. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify takes the guesswork out of financial decisions at every stage of life. Maxify calculates what you can afford to spend now and throughout retirement. And you can run what-if scenarios to see how your finances might change by taking a new job, buying a home, or downsizing. Knowing the impact before you decide lets you make smarter decisions so you can finally enjoy financial peace of mind. Are you ready? Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I, Maxify.com. So, uh, Larry, I recently read an a analysis by uh, the Aspen Economic Security Group, Karen Dynan's uh, paper, and she points out that uh, federal tax revenues as a percent of GDP on average are around 17.5%. They you know, fluctuate around that uh, uh, average. But uh, however one gets there, do you think ultimately that we do need a significant increase and immediate increase uh, in uh, the fed, fed, federal tax uh, revenues? Do you think that that's an inevitable part of the solution here? Well, we need either, I mean, there are some economists, just get back to your first question, who think we can engage in uh, kind of magic, uh, just keep borrowing. And because the interest rate, uh, at least it was low when they were talking about right. doing this. Uh, and we're talking about people like Olivia Blanchard, former IMF uh, chief economist, um, and Lawrence Summer, former treasury secretary. Uh, they think there's a free game by just take borrowing more and more and just uh, paying at a low interest. Uh, of course, the interest rate is no longer low. Uh, in, in either nominal or, or real terms. And uh, that analysis was flawed to begin with. It, uh, Blanchard delivered uh, the presidential address uh, to um, the American Economic Associ Association 2019. And he basically said uh, deficits are free, uh, or at least he raised the question. He said deficits may be free, put it that way. And uh, if you look carefully at the model that he presented, it's really um, got some uh, misinterpretation. He kind of misinterpreted his own model. And and the reason that uh, running deficits in his model had nothing to do with the return on interest, uh, the return, the, the payment you had to make the R on the debt versus the G, the growth rate of the economy, uh, you, you couldn't kind of outgrow the debt. It was really due to the fact that um, 
the interest rate was low because there was a lot of risk in his model and people were nervous and government bonds are safe. Uh, so when times get uh, uh, dangerous, uh, or if you set up a model where there's a lot of, of risk, then you uh, suppress the, the interest rate goes down. It has nothing to do with with uh, the fundamentals of the economy, which are the, the productivity of capital, which is far beyond the, the growth rate, the true R, if you want to call it that, the right R to look at. And so once you uh, say, let's think about a, a government policy that appropriately deals with the risk, uh, then the entire uh, possibility of trying to make everybody else buy running a Ponzi scheme goes away. You know, in other words, what, we, what his model is about is insurance, insuring across generations, not about um, running a, a sustainable Ponzi scheme. Uh, and he just didn't understand what he was writing. The, uh, but get, to get back to your, uh, your question, do we need to uh, raise taxes or cut spending? Absolutely. It's kind of black. It's black and white. This is what economists uh, specialize in is making sure people understand budget constraints, whether it's household or government or uh, uh, countrywide budget constraints. We have to, um, national budget constraints, we have to realize that we can't spend more than we've got. And the um, uh, the problem, though, with raising taxes is our, our tax system is so screwed up that we have over half of the country, regardless of whether you look at the poor or the middle class or the rich, in marginal tax brackets, when you put everything together, uh, so for the rich, it's, you know, uh, and I'm not talking about the super rich who have a great way to avoid taxes we could get to, but pretty pretty rich uh, people, not super rich, uh, they can, they have to face uh, 37% federal marginal tax on working. Uh, then there's a state marginal tax and there's sales taxes, all of which reduce the incentive to work. And you have some people um, uh, in the 70% bracket, not the, you know, we're not to talk about the 50% bracket, but but 70% uh, bracket, we've got the medians around 50% for everybody. But, uh, but then if you look at the poor, we have probably a third of the poor are in marginal tax brackets above 60, 65%. Some are in marginal tax brackets of 20,000% uh, based on recent work I've done that you can look at at kotlikoff.net with Alan Auerbach and other co-authors. Um, the What's going on here is that if I'm poor and um, let's say I'm earning the minimum wage, I'm getting food stamps, housing support, Medicaid for myself, Medicaid for my kid, let's say I'm, uh, and then I may also be getting some uh, TANF, which is welfare benefits. And as I earn more money, I start losing these benefits. And I could, if I earn more money, I could lose, you know, if I earn an extra $10,000, I could go over a threshold beyond which I lose my Medicaid for my kids. That could cost me $10,000 just there. And that's how you can get super high uh, marginal taxes. So what we're doing is we've set up a fiscal system, a tax system, that is locking the poor into poverty because we've got so many of them in such super high marginal tax brackets. And then we've got people at, at other levels of earnings who are also dis, disencouraged from working. So what we need is a fundamental, when I said we need to fundamentally fix things, we need a fundamental reform of social security that basically grandfathers this old system and puts, um, puts, puts younger people into something that's fully funded and and is sensible and is progressive, uh, but is not, you know, giving them is not adding an extra 12.4% tax to their marginal tax bracket. Uh, and for the tax system, we need to go to much more simplified uh, taxes, like a negative income tax that's categorically that would be different for single people with kids and married people with kids, or or uh, consumption tax, broad-based consumption taxes, plus a, a progressive cash flow tax. I know I'm kind of saying things that people may not be fully familiar with in terms, but we economists have been studying uh, ways to get more revenue with less um, work disincentives. So we need to do that. And on the spending side, uh, we need some major reform, not just the Social Security, but 
on the healthcare, we're spending as a country 18% of GDP on healthcare. We're getting 21st level results in terms of the ranking of healthcare outcomes and across different countries. Sweden spends 11% of GDP. We're 18%. Sweden's 11%. They're getting fourth best results. We're getting 21st best results. So why don't we just do what Sweden does? Okay, why don't we just adopt their plan? Or I propose with other uh, economists and, and, and George Halverson is a former uh, CEO of Kaiser Permanente, the Better Way plan, healthcare plan, which is basically uh, do Medicare for all, but it's the Medicare Part C version of Medicare uh, with some modifications. Uh, so it's a Republican version of Medicare where you have competition but it's very strict so that the met these companies can't cherry pick on the public and they can't um, under supply. We want to try and make healthcare a uniform project product, just like wheat so that there's super competition. When you have a homogeneous product and when you tell healthcare companies they have to provide exactly the same thing throughout the country, and then they can compete on, and then, and then everybody knows exactly what they're getting uh, and it's not that uh, this healthcare company says promises UX and then actually doesn't provide it. Uh, and then you also have the ability to leave and, and switch to a different company uh, every year. That's where you get competition. That's the kind of thing that's going on in Sweden, these other countries, competition. So we can get that 18% of GDP down to 11%. That can save the country right there. So if we did nothing else but had a presidential candidate who implemented fundamental healthcare reform, universal health insurance that was done right, um, not Obamacare and, and Medicare and Medicaid and employer-based care. We have a balkanized system. We're, we're just, we're basically shooting ourselves in the head. We have the ability to fix things, but we're not doing it. So unfortunately, tax policy is path dependent. I remember, I remember the, uh, Greece crisis, Eurozone crisis, and Juncker, who was head of the European Union, said, we all know what to do. We just can't get reelected after we've done it. So uh, I guess um, my question is, politically speaking, we're going to have to deal in some sort of incremental way. And I happened to stumble across a very interesting page on the CBO's website which is called budget options. And it lists all these potential uh, revenue enhancement measures, things like getting rid of the carrot interest uh, for private equity, increasing the FICA tax, taxing uh, employer contributions uh, to healthcare. And just looking at that list, it really seems to me that the biggest payoffs are frankly in increasing the tax rates that other things seem fairly modest. Uh, so I'm just wondering whether intellectually um, it's really possible to uh, come to the conclusion that we can't, that, that we're able to raise more revenue without raising tax rates one way or another. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think that, um most of what needs to be done is to cut spending intelligently in a way that is not um, devastating to anybody. And that, I mean, think about reforming social security in a way that uh, grandfathers, the old system pays off people's accrued liabilities, what they've earned under the old system, but gives younger people a new system that's very similar to the Singapore uh, system right. that contribute into a provident fund and they know the money's right there, their money, uh, it's invested in all these securities in the world with the government guarantee. And the, there's matching contributions on behalf of the poor, the disabled, the unemployed. And then you get the money out in the form of an annuity that continues uh, until you die and it's inflation adjusted. All that is in my personal security account proposal. Wall Street makes not a penny, uh, not a single penny from this proposal. So that would, uh, uh, give young people something they don't currently have, which is uh, uh, right now they have a ticket to a disaster from Social Security. <laughs> and uh, this would give them 
this would say, look, well, we what you thought you were going to get from Social Security, you're not going to get. So you're going to get some pain here. This is not free. And you're going to have to contribute 10% of your pay uh, split between, you know, it's going to go in part half into your account and half in your spouse or partner's account, um, legal partner's account. And, uh, but it's yours and nobody's going to screw around with it. We're going to get out from under an 88-year-old system that was built piecemeal. And this is something you can count on because it's fully funded and it's not a generational ripoff. Okay. That to me is, and that would eliminate a 12.4%. Uh, well, no, we'd have to keep the payroll tax in place for a while. And it would come down through time as we paid off the old liabilities. But that to me is, you know, thinking out of the box, doing major reform. Now you're saying, well, do we have to do kind of piecemeal reform? I don't agree. I think that if you have a uh, presidential candidate who... Uh, says, look, here's the actual situation, what we're in, and we have to do some things that are radical. We have to, because we can't continue this way. We can't continue spending 18% of GDP and then trying to have the biggest military in the world uh, and compete with Russia and China uh, and North Korea just throwing up a missile yesterday, uh, another ballistic missile. We have to be prepared, and therefore we can't afford to waste money. And that's what we're doing on the spending side. And on the tax side, we can't we can't afford to uh, tax people at the margin uh, in a way that gives them no incentive to work. We can't afford to lock poor people into poverty generation generation after generation, so they have no incentive to uh, make sure their kids are well educated and get good jobs because you know they're going to lose more than they get than they make in the or lose so much from working that it just doesn't pay. Uh, we, we just can't afford this kind of uh, policy and, and doing things, you know, think about Social Security, what they did in uh, 1983 under the Greenspan Commission, when we were in the situation where the projection was that we we're going to run out of money in the short term, what Greenspan did, uh, and I wish you were, were alive to be on my, on my podcast so we could talk about it, but what he did was he did... Um, he basically operated on a quarter of a tumor. We have a huge tumor. He decides to operate on maybe a third of the tumor, knowing that he only operated on a third, knowing that, you know, here we are uh, years later, I guess it's about 40 years later, and the tumor is not just, you know, the two thirds he didn't operate on. It's much bigger than it was. It's about twice as big as it was before he um went to work to fix things. And he proclaimed that he had fixed things with his political uh, committee, the Greenspan Commission. It was all full of politicians, basically. And they did too little too late. So that's what we're doing. That's why we're drifting towards Argentina's trajectory of going from the fifth highest per capita GDP country in 2020, 1920 to where it is today, where we have, uh, you know, it's basically uh, a developing country again, emerging country, uh, it had 85% of U.S. per capita GDP in 2020. Today, it's 14%. This is a result of a, a century of bad government. Want more money, less risk, and a better life? Buy Money Magic, a new book by Lawrence Kotlikoff, Boston University economist, personal finance expert, and best-selling author. Whether it's education, career, marriage, housing, investing, retirement, social security, IRA, or 401k decisions, Money Magic delivers scores of secrets to raise your living standard. Financial journalist Jane Bryant Quinn says Money Magic is a must read. Nobel laureate George Akerlof says Money Magic is quite probably the best financial advice book ever written. Financial guru John Malden says, You'll love this amazing book. It's full of wit, wisdom, and startling paths to a better financial life. And columnist Scott Burns calls Money Magic a funny, brilliant read, offering wildly powerful, unconventional choices that can literally change your life. Get Lawrence Kotlikoff's Money Magic today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent booksellers. So, Larry, it, it appears in recent years, to put it mildly, that our ability to act proactively to address structural problems is diminished. I think it was 
Ram Emanuel, who said during the global financial crisis that a good crisis should never go to never go to waste. And my uh, instincts are are to get the fundamental reform uh, or even significant piecemeal reform that you've outlined that it will it's going to take uh, uh, a major disruption, such as a disruption in the treasury market or uh, some other you know, uh, technical debt default through Congress, uh, not uh, raising the debt limit or or whatever. Let let me uh, press real quick, real quick yeah. to that. Um, we've had you know the the Great Recession was a huge. We had seventeen major financial institutions collapse. We had unemployment go up to you know ten percent from much much lower. Uh, uh, that was a big enough shock and we didn't get any fundamental reform. We got, what we did is we had um, uh, the uh, Dodd-Frank bill basically just rebuilt the financial industry the way it was. And then Barney Frank goes off to work for Signature Bank, which is one of the ones who just failed uh, based on uh, uh, the same kind of problems that led to the other failures. So there was nothing fundamental that happened. So big shocks aren't necessarily the answer. I, th I mean, the... <laughs> The salvation. I think what's Catalyst. salvation is actually having a conversation at uh, the right level and having economists uh, present fundamental ideas. So, you know, we have a problem here of engineering. It's economic engineering. We have not a single economist with a PhD, not a single person with a PhD in economics in Congress. 535 members, not one of them has a PhD in economics. I don't know how many have a master's. I don't know how many actually were undergraduate majors. So they don't have the capacity, frankly, to uh, think through major reforms because that's not in their wheelhouse. They're mostly lawyers uh, or came from some business people. That's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But to but what we need is really major you know, reforms. I put out a book called uh, You're Hired. It's on my website, it's a free download at kotlikoff.net which is my, when I ran for president as a write-in candidate in 2016, it's my platform. It's right there. Any of these candidates could take it and say, hey, we're gonna go with what economics has to do. And when I say economics, it's coming from me, but it's also coming from other economists in the sense, uh, because I went around and talked to the top healthcare economists, the top uh, uh, fiscal economists, the top, uh, Social Security, uh, you know, the economists who had specialized in these areas and banking uh, to ask, what should we do and what are their views? Now, I didn't accept everybody's views. Not everybody agrees, especially in the banking area. Um, a lot of people have vested interests. If you're an economist, you've been consulting with uh, major banks. You don't want to do anything that rocks the ship because it's going to rock your your wallet, right? But uh this book does contain in very, in, in bullet point length, you know, each reform is about eight to 10 bullet points and it's crystal clear what to do. It's not complicated, any of these reforms and we can just do it. So I do think I'm actually more optimistic that we can, uh, uh, if we can get somebody who really understands how difficult the situation is, a good politician, but then adopts what economists have to say and persuades the public this is what's needed, uh, then we can get this possibly to work. Otherwise, we're going to be Argentina. There's, a, there's an old saying, the first law of economics is that resources are limited. And the first law of politics is forget the first law of economics. So... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I want to get to limited purpose uh, banking, but before we do that, I, I'd like to just briefly touch on this Singapore-like idea of funding people's social uh, security. And let me tell you a little, uh, a little story. I had a friend who ran the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And at that time I was in business and I went to him and I said, why don't you consider investing in emerging markets for a variety of reasons, diversification, return enhancement, 
broader opportunity set. And he basically said, Congress won't let us do it. So under your plan, how do we avoid the politicization of investments? And let me just point out that now that in a number of states, Chinese companies can't purchase American farmland. <laughs> so uh, uh, how do we how do how do we deal with some of the political constraints on global investments when people are being told that their money is being invested in, in Germany or France or wherever it might be? Well, I would hope that we would. Um, so let me just go through the proposal, which is that we. Uh, it's called the Personal Security Account System. If you go to larrykotlikoff.substack.com, larrykotlikoff.substack.com, you can, um, first of all, get a free subscription to my newsletter and to this podcast if you don't um, have one already. Uh, you can also pay for a subscription if you want, but it's free. Uh, and then uh, you'll see a, an article called the Personal Security Account uh, System. And the way it would work uh, would be this, that uh, let's say, George, you're 45 um, and you have been contributing to Social Security and you have an earnings history. Well, we're going to do the reform, let's say, starting today. We fill zeros in your earnings record. So when you reach for re uh, retirement age, you can decide when to start your benefit. And it'll be based on that earnings history that has positive values up to age 45, zeros thereafter, you're gonna get your full accrued benefit under the old system. But we're shutting down the old system at the margin because you're not accruing any additional benefits. Now, what do we do? What else do we do? Well, we keep the FICA tax in place to pay off these old benefits, these accrued benefits, and we'll be able to lower it a bit from 12.4 down probably to about 10. And then gradually through time, as we pay off these accrued benefits, have it go to zero. So that's the old system. Now, at the margin, you're going to have to contribute, you and your uh, wife or partner, if you're legal, legally uh, partnered, would contribute 10% of your pay uh, to your personal security account. And let's say I'm also 45, so you're putting in 10%, and it's before the money goes in, the money that you put in and you that you that this 10% of your wage and the 10% of your uh, spouse's wage uh, are combined and split in half. So half of that total contribution goes into your account, half goes into her or his account. And if you get divorced, you walk away with an equal size account. I mean, it's your account. You're not, has nothing to do with your being married once it's in your account. So then the, the money, um, and if you're poor or unemployed or disabled, the government would make matching contributions to, to beef up your account. Uh, uh, so you have enough to to live off. Now, now all this money gets invested in. Um, let's say it's just invested in the S and P uh, index by my laptop. All this can be done on my single laptop with no involvement by Wall Street. I could program this up. Believe me, uh, and you you could as well. It's not that difficult. Uh, and and the reason it's not that difficult is everybody's invested in the same thing. So if we want to just restrict the investments to the U.S. financial uh, market, uh, and yeah, there will there be people who are arguing that it, we should not be including fossil fuel investments. Uh, well, well, my view is we need to, you know there will be people. I think they'll get outvoted. I think I think we can at least agree that we should be investing in the S and P 500 as well as the U.S. bond market. Uh, government and uh, corporate bonds and state local bonds. So now you have a diversified portfolio and then the government would guarantee that you get at least what you put in adjusted for inflation, that your account balance when you start having your um, your funds along with everybody else in your age group, I'm in your age group, you're in my age group, our money's in this thing. When we reach uh, 59, uh, the government is going to start gradually over the next 10 years withdrawing, uh, selling off our portfolio and buying inflation index bonds with it. So in effect, you've got a certain amount of inflation index bonds and I've got some a certain amount could be different based on the size of what we accumulated. But 
we're going to be getting the same rate of return uh, through time every year. Okay. Doesn't mean we're going to have the same balance, but we'll have the same rate of return. And then now we've got these inflation index bonds that are going to be used to pay us uh, annuities, pensions that begin at age 62. So by age 69, we will have been fully gotten out of this uh, global index, or this S&P fund, and uh, well, the U.S. market fund, let's not, not, not call it just the S&P because it, it will include bonds. And um, and by the way, you know, the U.S. companies, about 40% of their income is coming from abroad. So there'll be a lot of international diversification, including even in LDCs, uh, less developed countries, through just investing in U.S. companies, large, large and small uh, scale companies that are that are listed, uh, and then uh, between sixty, you know, after age sixty nine, we're we're getting these. Uh, well, between sixty two and sixty nine, we start building up the uh, receipt of these annuities, their inflation index. They continue until we die, and that's a, a modern version of Social Security. That's what Bismarck, Chancellor Bismarck of Germany, who started Social Security, being with it in Germany in the like eighteen eighties. If he were here alive today, how would he set up Social Security? Would he do it the way we've got? Something that's unfunded, underfunded, that's uh, uh, running down, the, and, you know, that's got 2,728 rules in its uh, handbook, hundreds of thousands of rules, 20,000 pages of rules, if you printed out its program operating manual system, about the 2,728 <laughs> rules, about the 12 benefits that they apply to. So the thing is beyond complex. Um, I just wrote a book. Uh, I was just on 60 Minutes, co-author Terry Savage, with talking to uh, Anderson Cooper of this book called Social Security Horror Stories. Everybody should pick it up for Christmas. And it's about the fact that Social Security is clawing back. We discovered, we said in the book, a quarter of a million people, but actually uh, then the um, acting commissioner said they're clawing back a million people a year. And then it turns out that she was not, properly informed, it's 2 million a year, people getting letters in the mailbox that say, hey, you owe us 50,000 bucks, hey, you owe us 304,000 bucks, hey, uh, we're suing you, you're six years old, you've been getting the wrong benefit for the last, uh, we've been overpaying you for the last uh, year, pay us back. And uh, if, we, if you can't pay us back, your guardian who's been uh, running your checking account, they're obligated to pay back. I mean, it's most horrific uh, things going on <laughs> inside social security uh not that we're opposed to social security we're opposed to it terrorizing people finance being financially abusive so um so all of this is to say that we can uh we can fix things we can make things uh other countries have reformed social security fundamentally sweden right uh chile uh, a whole variety of countries have done this question how financially secure do you feel do you have enough money to retire? How much is enough? And if you don't have enough, how can you possibly find that money before you retire? Tough questions. One smart answer. Maxify. Maxify is the powerful online planning tool that takes the guesswork out of retirement. Maxify compares your assets against your fixed expenses to calculate how much you can safely spend every year for the rest of your life. And it shows you safe ways to find more money. Developed by Boston University economist Lawrence Kotlikoff, Maxify makes a complicated problem like retirement planning simple. Maxify. Powerful. Accurate. Easy to use. Want some peace of mind? Make the smart choice. Maxify. Visit Maxify.com today to start planning. That's Maxify with an I. M-A-X-I-F-I. Maxify.com. And other countries have also, per IMF Article 4 reports, engaged in significant fiscal adjustments. Indeed, we did so, right, during the Clinton years, right, when we brought down our debt to GDP very significantly, almost paid off our, our, our debt. So, um, Larry, I, Another idea that you've been very vocal about is this notion of limited purpose uh, banking. And you've pointed out correctly that the U.S. financial system roughly every 15 years appears to have uh, a financial crisis of one sort or another. This might reflect in part the dynamism of uh, 
new product creation uh, by the financial system and the complexity of the products that are created. But your basic idea, as I understand it, is, is that we basically set up a series of specialty mutual funds. Uh, and which would invest in various asset classes, mortgages, consumer loans, and so forth. I had a few, maybe you could say just a few words about that, but I, I did have a question about what this would mean for the monetary transmission mechanism and whether you think that might be changed by virtue of this proposal. Okay, so just to be to give a little background, thanks for the question. Uh, I wrote a, um, a proposal called Limited Purpose Banking, and then I wrote a book uh, about it called Jimmy Stewart is Dead uh, right around the time of the uh, Great Recession, which has gotten a fair amount of attention. Whenever there's, a, a, you know, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank went under the next day, Martin Wolf, the uh, chief economics correspondent of the Financial Times, start, starts writing about limited purpose banking. So uh, major people uh, have been uh, thinking about this. I've had conversations with uh, central bankers uh, from Paul Volcker, you know, on down over the years. Uh, so, so people take this seriously, this idea of an alternative way to run the the banking system. And that's the shorthand for the, all the financial corporations uh, in a way of the, how to run the financial system. So it can never fail again. Every 15 years, we have uh, a, a, re a recession, uh, that has the words panic in it. And it's a and it's connected to the financial panic that arises and then either causes the recession itself or makes the recession far worse. And the the the, the current system works like this. Uh, I'm a bank. I come to you or George, say, George, give me your money. I'll pay you back for sure, no matter what. I then put it, invested at risk, and then I tell you. George, you can come and grab it anytime. It's on, I give you back a checking account. It's an, a demand deposit. You can demand your money back. Uh, or I might say, say, sell you a CD. You can demand that back in, after a certain number of months. Or I even sell you a bond. Might have a little bit longer term. But what I'm doing is I'm making promises I can't keep. I'm promising to repay no matter what, no matter whether my investments that I've made with your money have gone to zero. Okay? And then the government is saying, well, if you, the bank, if I can't repay, the government will repay up to a limit. And uh, the problem is a couple. First of all, there's the limit is pretty still pretty low, like $250,000 per checking account. And about, of the $17 trillion of bank deposits, about $7 trillion are uninsured. So what we saw with the SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, run was that in the course of a of a day, uh, $42 billion were taken out of that bank and uh, transferred to money market funds, mutual funds that are basically uh, where the money is exactly is invested um, uh, in a way where you actually see what you're investing in and you're and you own the investment in effect through the mutual fund. I'll get to that in a second. But anyway, um, Silicon Valley Bank goes down a couple of weeks later or a couple of days later, Signature Valley Bank uh, chairman is uh, one of the members of the board, not the chairman, Barney Frank, uh, go, that goes down. We've had uh, uh, you know several other major banks go down and we're sitting here with still the potential for a major run on these uninsured deposits um, that could kick off a run on the insured deposits because the government is saying well, we're not going to insure these uninsured deposits, especially with, if they're with small, medium-sized banks. Uh, but it, when push comes to shove, they'll have to say we are. But if everybody does what they do in Argentina, which is calls the government's bluff and goes for the money, uh, then if the government were to try and print 17 trillion, and then if you're going for your uninsured deposit, it's now been insured, and I've gotten, you know, let's say $100,000, I'm going to go get my money out because I I, I realize the government doesn't have the wherewithal to print 17 trillion, to come up with 17 trillion bucks. And therefore there's gonna be inflation if they try and make good on this. And therefore I need to get my money out to go buy some furniture at, at Ikea. So the problem is that we have the banks making promises they can't keep. And then on top of that, the government makes promises they can't keep. 
And you see this, uh, so we have a system that's fundamentally unstable, that's fundamentally uh, on a knife edge, both at the, at the, at the bank, at the private level and the, and the government level, and it is not fundamentally sustainable. And we're putting the entire country's economy at risk because the entire thing can melt down as it has repeatedly in Argentina. So limited purpose banking real quick works like this. Rather than you're giving me your money and I say, I'm gonna pay it back for sure. I'm a bank or, or a credit union or a mortgage company or whatever. Um, what I say is I'm a mutual fund and you give me your bank, your money, I'm gonna give you back shares to the mutual fund. And we have 10,000 mutual funds in our country already. And they, some of the money that uh, the mutual funds are taking in are to invest in mortgages. Some are to invest in commercial paper. Uh, some are to invest in the stock market. Uh, some are invest, to invest in foreign stocks. But the key thing is that if these investments go south, you, George, have shares that lose value, but you can't come to me and say, where's my money? Because I'm not making any guarantee. So right. if, all the if all the financial companies, all the financial corporations are organized as mutual funds, um, equity finance mutual funds that have no debt, then they can never go bankrupt. So then you have a financial system that can never fail. And let me just say that in the, the last thing I'll say here, is that in 2008, when we had uh, some like 400 banks fail and 17 of the largest banks uh, or financial institutions, including Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and AIG, which is the, was the largest insurance company at the time in the world, uh, they all failed for the same reason. They were all leveraged. Uh, they all made promises they couldn't keep. Uh, uh, they they they've they failed and uh, they would not have failed had they been limited purpose banks, which are mutual funds. Now, now, now let me uh, let you respond. And I know you want to ask about the monetary. Well, I just want to, yeah, I want to ask about, uh, I mean, let's take as a given the leverage and opacity issue and the fundamental structural issue of maturity transformation. Uh, the policy response Basel III being, you know, focus on capital, reduce, re reduce leverage. But let's accept that the issues that you've highlighted still persist. Uh, it seems to me that one of the one aspect of your proposal is, is that basically it's distributing the losses to the individual investors. So if I invest in a cash mutual fund and uh, there are losses for whatever reason, uh, the the effect of breaking the buck is basically uh, the NAV goes down of the assets of the fund and my share, my think shares go a, down. Think about a money, money market fund. Right, right. But, but, but let, let, let's deal with the issue of monetary transmission. Ba banks are making loans and creating deposits. How does the monet how does the money, money, money multiplier work? And the, basically the conduct of monetary policy, how is that impacted by your uh, proposal, and does it become more complicated or structurally different? Well, no, I would say everything becomes easier. Actually, the um, so first of all, there you mentioned cash mutual funds. Th that's different um, from a money market mutual fund, and that's different from a stock mutual fund or a mortgage mutual right. fund. And these mutual funds, some of these would be open end. Most of our mutual funds right now are open ended, uh, but a lot under under this new system would be closed ended close-end funds where I take in money uh, in my mortgage fund, which is investing in mortgages in Providence, where I'm speaking to you from, where we live, uh, even though I commute to BU to, to teach. Uh, and uh, uh, I take in a certain amount of money and at this date, the window closes. It's just a, kind of like a, a racetrack bet. Uh, you put, everybody puts in their money, then I take the money and I invest in mortgages. Uh, for people living in Providence, uh, and uh, and if the mortgages, whatever money comes back to the fund is then paid back to you, the investor, but you can't come and get any money out at any date. I'm not, uh, you can't redeem your shares from me, but because we'd have a federal agency that was verifying these mortgages on a real time basis, you'd be able to sell the, your shares on a secondary market. 
So we'd have something we don't have, which is, uh, you know, transparency in the system. We get rid of the opacity that under underlies the current system. Because when I, as a bank, I take in money I invested, you don't get to know what I'm doing with it. Uh, that's what's going on in the current system. Now, the way the monetary system would work is you would have a cash, every mutual fund company would be uh, issuing cash mutual funds where you give me some money, I give you back uh, and I, you know, uh, shares to it, uh, but it's just a cash mutual fund. So it's holding only cash, basically parked with the Federal Reserve. So that's your transactions account. That was called uh, narrow banking, that proposal to have cash mutual funds. Right. Uh, the economists of uh, like Irving Fisher and Frank Knight uh, in the 1930s proposed this, but uh, limited purpose banking goes far beyond uh, narrow banking. Narrow banking is a part, a component of limited purpose banking, but uh, you know, we'd have uh, every single financial corporation doing just one thing, which is issuing mutual funds that are 100% equity finance with the government uh, verifying everything about those mutual fund securities on a real-time basis. You might think that's a big, that that's a huge big deal, but that verification is happening already all the time. Think about getting a mortgage. You have to go to five different banks. If you go to five different banks, you have to have your house inspected by five different companies to get a mortgage uh, or you have to you fill out the paperwork. We'd have, this would be a whole lot simple, simpler in terms of the verification process. And, and uh, as I discussed in the book, but anyway, how does the government um, now uh, increase the money supply? Well, uh, it would, um, uh, the money multiplier would be one because uh, uh, there would be no banks who would then make, uh, you know, issue loans and then people would be able to uh, you know, kind of create loans out of thin air and then have the people say, I give you a, a loan and then you immediately deposit the, the loan in my check. I, I give you a loan by opening up a checking account for you, in effect, uh, making money out of the blue. Okay, that's the current system. So here the government would have complete control over the money supply, which is something that, you know, that uh, Milton Friedman advocated. Um, uh, and, uh, but then how would the government expand the money supply? Well, the government could, you know, the treasury, for example, the way they currently do it is through open market operations, as you well know, the treasury sells uh, bonds to a bank, uh, maybe, uh, you know, it's a Wall Street bank. And then the, the Fed basically prints money and buys up those bonds. So the Treasury sells you some bonds through this company on Wall Street. You Your money goes to the Treasury. They go buy chicken for the president for dinner. And then I, Jerome Powell, the central uh, of the Federal Reserve, print money and use that to uh uh, buy back your bond. Now I'm holding them up on, you're holding the same amount of money and the, the government has the chicken. Okay. Uh, and so the private sector has fewer chickens and there's more money because you have the same amount of money. Uh, well, the government, Uncle Sam has now spent the money that you gave it, the cash to buy chickens. So there's that money that you originally had, that cash is back in the system. And then I've given you some more cash because I printed it uh, at the Federal Reserve, and so we have more ca more dollars, you know, chasing fewer chickens. That would happen here as well because the Fed would just buy Treasury bonds from mutual funds that were marketing Treasury bonds, and these would okay. be funds. So that's how that's how uh, open market operations. But the Fed could could operate in on any of these mutual funds. It could buy not just you know this particular type of security. But it could buy commercial paper. It could buy the stocks if it wanted to support the stock market. It's done a lot of this stuff indirectly through quantitative easing. So it's not like it's not doing this. It's just not doing it in an open way. There'll always be a need for a lender of last resort, whatever the structure of the financial system seems to me. And your system, your your proposal would reduce risks, but there still would exist. Uh, innovation in the financial system and uh, periodic shocks of one sort or another. Larry, we're, we're at the end of our hour, which went very quickly. 
seems to me any one of these topics we could spend a lot a lot of time on but i i want to thank you very much uh, for this opportunity and i'm reminded of a of a chinese phrase which is the journey of a million miles begins with a single step so i really think these are it's wonderful to put forth these ideas and i completely agree with you that we need bold and innovative thinking to address some of the very, very significant problems that we have. So thank thank you very much thank, indeed. Thank you, George. It's been a great pleasure and uh, uh, happy holidays to you and uh, to everybody else listening. Thanks very much. Thanks for this opportunity.